0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of ADHD Mums. Today we are discussing the interaction between ADHD and self-hatred, which will be a cracker episode. I'm very excited about. We started the topic with Chantelle, who is a mother of two. She's an enrolled nurse. She lives in North Brisbane. She's also neurodiverse and her children are neurodiverse. So we did start that conversation off. We got a little sidetracked. So we've come to restart and stick to topic. God help us doing that. So welcome, Chantel.
1: Thanks so much, Jane. I promise I'll try my hardest to, to stick to topic. So what where we got up to last
0: time before we got off track was you were talking about how when you went into your GP, you said that you felt that the diagnosis helped you hate yourself less. I'd love to know more about that.
1: Yeah, I. it really was a surprising part of receiving a diagnosis. I actually didn't expect that until I would move through my day or, you know, as things would happen and I would start to realise, oh, this isn't just because I'm incompetent or not capable or choosing to be disrespectful because I'm late, (laughs) this is actually because I need to allow myself these certain things to be able to life. And I didn't realise how much I had been living in that state of, of shame every minute of every day and that blanket of shame has kind of started to come off as I have got different tools and and resources but even the GP said in that conversation he said wow I have never thought of it like that I really wondered how many other people out there feel like that too
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's widely known or spoken about that shame is supposed to be the most negative bottom dwelling emotion possible, which is, you know, we don't want to get onto child molestation, but that, you know, shame has got a huge part to do with that. And, you know, we often, I always say to my husband, you know, we can guilt our children, but we don't shame them. So, you know, Brené Brown talks a lot about this. They say, you know, that was not a good choice or that was a bad choice, you shouldn't, that was not a good choice versus you're a bad child, you are an idiot, you are stupid, that is shame versus the guilt. So, you know, a bit of Catholic guilt, I grew up with Catholic guilt, is a lot more healthy, supposedly, than than shame, which is the most negative emotion, yet it's very much linked with ADHD, I think.
1: Mm. Look, it's definitely been my experience and something I'm really conscious of in parenting, neurodivergent children and in the work that I do because there is and has been in my you know my personal experience I have this inherent belief that I'm less or I'm useless or I'm you know not reliable and all of those things when in actual fact given the right conditions I am more of those things you know than possibly the people that I know or the people that are thinking that I'm those things and I don't want my children growing up thinking because of the choices they make or what they do they deserve to feel like that and it's about you know empowering them to ask for adjustments and that they're not unreasonable requests and a lot of the adjustments neurotypical people could really benefit from too so they're not asking just for them you know this could actually really help their friends or their environment or their workplace or whatever it might be and to have the confidence to do that and building their confidence and self-esteem you know that that's really important because you know I'm acutely aware of how that not having that foundation has you know, has impacted my life.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really cumulative as well because if we have, you know, I think the stats are now one in 20 people in Australia have ADHD and it's looking more like it's a 50-50 spread. I think they were saying for a while it was seven boys to one girl. Now they're saying it's more like three to four boys to one girl. Okay, at some point we're going to be playing the 50-50 game. In my personal opinion, I don't know. That's just my opinion. But so I'm thinking, okay, well, we've only got hundreds of thousands of, of women that are, are have not been diagnosed at the right time, that have been given incorrect therapy, incorrect medication, which in my mind has shamed them more deeply because the proper the proper treatment apparently doesn't work, and I think if you're if you're getting a diagnosis at 35, 40, I spoke to someone yesterday who was 48, uh, 55, whatever age you are. And you've got all those years of evidence that you don't make good decisions, you don't stick to task, you are not successful, you don't know what's happening. In my opinion, you've just got a huge cumulative, big pile of evidence to tell you that you are not good enough.
1: And then when you start therapy for your ADHD, you're undoing all of that through your therapy. And that is confronting and overwhelming so you are then living with a different kind of um, fallout you're then feeling vulnerable because for the first time in your life you're exploring these things and the impact that that has on your family or your work life because you're exploring this for the first time and for the first time you're confronted with these emotions or being validated in who you are and understanding who you are and I, I also didn't give enough gravity to that.
0: I also think if you're a mum, and a lot of these people, a lot of women on this podcast are going to be mums, right? If you're a mum, you are also given all of this information at the worst time. So you are given this information where you have no time to process. I remember getting diagnosed. I rang my bestie on the way home. I picked one, came up from daycare, picked the other two up from school, and I kind of yelled at my husband over the top of getting dinner. I think I have ADHD because I couldn't hold it in, but it was actually a really inappropriate time to discuss it. And we had absolutely no time to discuss. I had no time to think. And it pretty much like rolled through where you would love to sit and process it more, but you know, there's never been a time where you've got less, less time or, or space. If you want to cry, your kids are like all over you. What's the matter? What's the matter? You know, there's no space to grieve or to, to really explore it
1: that's so true and people or therapists will say you know it's okay to have all of these feelings sit with all of these feelings and I'm like sure but how when I'm cooking dinner and helping with homework and doing spelling and you know getting to the gym or making sure I've got lunch you know how how do I arrange that time in amongst my lack of executive functioning you know if the medication food sleep balance is out how do I do that and so then it becomes a task of having to address maybe homework in therapy or and then I find myself falling into that trap of There's an expectation that I need to do this. Then it turns out round circles to task paralysis and it all starts again. And then the shame and self-worth hits again or lack of self-worth. And you then use all of your skills and strategies and tools to come out of that. But it only started because you were trying to feel what you've been told is valid to be feeling at this point in your therapy or in your diagnosis or and how to help yourself and there's only much only so much energy you have to do that when you're already every day you're up against those you know feelings those negative feelings about yourself
0: you know i love what you're saying because i was just sitting here thinking well this sounds like a recipe for self-destruction so you've got somebody who's feeling all of that right. And then it's like, I wonder why people with ADHD possibly get, you know, involved with things that are a little more risky or, you know, addictions, for example, if they're full of self-loathing at this point in self-hatred or, you know, the link with eating disorders that we haven't, I haven't managed to get an expert to discuss yet, but I know in the US, what they're looking at is people that go into addiction centers and eating disorder clinics are going to be tested for ADHD when they arrive. Because if that's what is happening, then they need to address that first, which is, I think, amazing, to be honest, and so progressive. But I also then think, well, this makes sense with depression, anxiety, and all the misdiagnosis, because you've got a whole group of people that are hating themselves, loathing themselves, and are possibly moving towards self-destruction during their teenage years. And if you make enough bad decisions, you're just on a bad path. And it's very difficult to get off. I mean, we don't want to start talking about the juvenile justice system, but that's you know that I believe that there's a lot of people that have made just made some really bad choices, about some bad luck, and they can't get back out of that that path they're on. What would you What would you think about that?
1: The impulsivity <laughs> as of ADHD it really works in with that connection of, of making you know, bad decisions that then have consequences. And it's, I think it's really critical that they are doing those assessments in addiction centres because they're then looking at the person holistically and why, you know, the cause of those behaviours or those addictions. The, you know, there's quite a, a few people out in socials that have got videos out there about, The opposite of addiction is connection, and if you are a, you know, teenager whose family who you know just can't, in inverted commas, deal with you, you are then lacking the connection from the people who, as society and who we know as kids, that provide that unconditional level of support. So. You've, you've broken that connection and then you've got, you know, dopamine seeking behaviours or, you know, dopamine chasers who engage in those impulsive decisions and, you know, that they then lost that connection of people who, or the value in connection as well. And so then that cycle of behaviour continues. And I really feel that, that that is a huge element in diagnosis as well of connecting with family and knowing how to do that. And When you have, you know, a lack of self-worth and, you know, such a degree of self-loathing and self-hatred, it's really hard to even feel valuable enough to have connection with those people or those relationships. Yeah, and it's, it's
0: it's a really funny one because, you know, you have a daughter and I have a daughter and it's it's my belief that that, that starts early and then you're in kind of a, a hard way to, to get out of it. For example, my daughter is only seven and she's starting to come home and say, you know, someone called me a weirdo today. And, you know, I always laugh and say, but aren't we all? But, you know, that's that's a very innocent example. You know, she enjoys musical theatre and she's a little out there, right? And I am too. That's fine. But I noticed um, the other day I was picking up rubbish in her room, which is, you know, my pastime and my hobby, picking up rubbish from my daughter's room. And I noticed she had written on a piece of paper all of the animals that she likes and all of her friends and what boys she likes. And anyway, she writes down this little list. And I could see there she only had three friends, which... Yeah. You know, it's probably accurate anyway. And then I could see that she really roughly crossed out one of them because one of them had been really quite rude and made it very clear. She didn't want to be her friend anymore. And she's kind of dealing with the grief of that, but not having an understanding of as to why. And, you know, then she said to me, you know, I've only been to one birthday party this year. And I know there's birthday parties and no one invites me. And I'm just looking at it like, well, she's beginning to get a lot of evidence here that she's not good enough. She's not right. She doesn't fit. And, you know, as a mother, you're like, you just want to jump in and and like bully people out at lunchtime. But there's obviously that path that she has to learn on her own. But would you have anything to share? Because, I mean, obviously, your daughter's a little bit older around, you know, what we can do to... Mitigate all of the self hatred that's just going to be coming at our girls.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And my daughter was really lucky that that quite early on in her primary school journey, she really found her people who understand her and embraced her. And it was one or two friends, and she definitely had some social inconsistencies. But my son has actually felt it more and he is younger and what I am trying to instill I can't be in the playground (laughs) I'd I'd love to be some days because it's heartbreaking when they tell you the things that they tell you but I am really focusing on you know what are the things when they say they do have a friend or they do have one really good friend, you know, what are the things you really like about them? So then we go back to the values and what does a good human look like? What values do you see in them? And what values, if someone was talking about you, how would you like them to describe you and do our actions match that? And if someone's not, you know, being nice to you or their behavior you didn't like, what, what did that look like? And, you know, Do you sometimes do that? And if you do do that, why do you do that? So then there's also a level of understanding. Nobody's having a great day every day. No one's having a great morning every morning or whatever. But it doesn't mean that you need to tolerate that just because they were nice yesterday. But equally, you know, you can role model those good values and good humanness and comfortable in yourself that you are a good friend or you can but you don't have to be friends with everybody. I think there's a there's a big push on you know we all have to be kind and we all have to you know love each other and and we don't. You don't have to be friends with everyone because their values might not match yours and that's okay but you can still be kind and considerate and that's where your values are important. And just recently, one of my beautiful friends has, we talked through a resource that we're using with our kids at the moment, and it's called a peer uh, amid, so as in pyramid, but peer as in friends, and it's a, you know, triangle that then talks about like on the bottom, what, what level of friendship, so different friendship levels, and who they might be in each of the kids' lives and what the kind of expectation is of each level. You know, you're not going to expect that a person that's sitting on the the bottom would then behave or you would do things with the same as you do with that person that's on the top. And the person that, that matches that level of friendship might only be one person and there is nothing wrong with that. You don't need to have 15 friends because there's no value in that there's no quality in that but you might have 10 people that kind of sit mid-range in the pyramid that's okay but you might have one that's at the top so you are still valuable even if you've got one friend at the top that matches that criteria yeah that's really interesting
0: isn't it because you know adhd with impulsivity as you said you know sometimes you can overshare with somebody that might not be in that place in the pyramid. So, you know, you might have something to say, overshare something you shouldn't have, and then, you know, that can be a really hard lesson for kids to learn. We've all learned it as adults over and over again, but still, you know, sometimes we still get ourselves into trouble with saying things we shouldn't. But, it, yeah, that that's a really interesting way of phrasing it, though. I like that, actually.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, over my life, my diagnosis has, presented in a way that has allowed people to have a perception that you know I'm thoughtless and careless and disrespectful because I'm late or unproductive or forgetful and chaotic and you know just lazy and self-sabotaging and continuously you know interrupting and this has led to the what they don't understand because they those people were probably sitting somewhere at the bottom of the pyramid but i took on their level of judgment as gospel and that gave me the inherent belief that i'm not i'm worthless and that anything anything i could do is you know of no value to the point that it your level of functioning is impaired and I think that's the difference you know everybody will go through an element of you know self-reflection or you know could have done that better or whatever but when it's affecting your functioning to then be paralyzed to go back into those situations and you having those intrusive thoughts to the the degree you know that they are that's that's where the problem is and so that understanding that level of friendships and then the expectation, you know, I've, I've even spoken to the kids about, you know, if that person, you know, said that you were, you know, you can't spell very well and they're sitting at the bottom, are you really gonna value that? Are you gonna take that on board and think, I'm horrible at spelling because a person said that? Because the person at the top, as you move up, they're not saying you're a bad speller, they're saying, "Hey, do you want some help?" Or, "Hey, you should ask your mum. Your mum will help," because their their relationship with you is different, and their quality of friendship is different. And because they will come across, you know, workplaces where they, you know, they will get these things. So I think it's really important that they just understand the weight of each section of that and the different levels it also helps them to understand you know friend is such you know, li- so linear what does that mean you know there is so many different levels of friendship and they find that tricky to understand and I found it tricky to understand so it's a good visual to see where they fit and what those people say and how that will generate a feeling in them. Mm. And I think it's looking for that
0: evidence too, like you are saying, you know, someone that's on the bottom that might not necessarily love you and then then you're taking their thoughts as gospel or as really important, right? But then does that mean as people we are just looking around for evidence that we are no good? Because that's what that seems like to me. It's like, well, I'm just going to look at all of the birthday parties I haven't been invited to. I'm going to look at all of the evidence of me not being okay and then I'm going to take that on board and make that mine. One of the things that I think ADHD people, particularly women, do terribly is self-compassion. We do it so bad and it's the complete opposite to self-hatred but yet we're so empathic to other people. I feel like I care really deeply about my friends and my kids and I take on way more shit than I should to help people. But yet for myself, I really lack that grace or that moment to, okay, I've just made a mistake. Whereas, you know, we will just beat ourselves up internally for a long period afterwards when someone's, you know, just looked at you the wrong way. And I mean, maybe that's a bit of RSD, I don't know. But I think that's something to really think about anyway, with increasing the self-compassion and, you know, decreasing the self-hatred.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think negativity, this is a bit of a generalisation and I know the research is out there, but I'm, negativity is a more profound emotion in neurodivergence than positivity. So it takes a lot of training for us to see the positive and it has to really be highlighted before we actually realise and then believe it. So we can see it, we can understand it, we know that it's there. There could be 10 positive things and there'll be one negative thing, but we have you know, physiologically taken on board the negative thing. And I do believe that works in with anxiety as well, Of that's the focus, because then we need to change that. Oh, that's so
0: interesting. Because when we had our last chat, we were talking about the family dinner table and how much we dread that. And I was—I noticed my kids just want to talk about what happened that day that was negative. They just want to talk about that, and I have they had to put in this rule: you have to say two positive things before you get negative. But like they'll race through the positives, like, "Oh yeah, I ate some pretzels and I had an ice cream at the canteen. That was it." And then they'll just launch into all the negativity. I always wondered why that was. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and we do, so a way that I have tried to manage dinner time a little bit easier as well was talking about, so your highlight of the day and then your low light of the day and then something you did to help someone and something that someone did to help you. So again, when normalising that every day is not, you know, carnival fun and lollies and movies and popcorn, it's okay to have things that you loved and things that you didn't like in your day and then, you know, that building on the, what you've done to, you know, make someone's day better. That could be that you saw a piece of rubbish and you picked it up but you didn't actually even know whose it was that's okay and someone might have just you know picked up your library bag for you when you forgot it and finding the value and the happiness and positive in the little things because I think quite often we're looking for big things you know we're looking for firework positivity in our day and that's not realistic and encouraging our kids to see that as well so and when they talk about something if it's got a negative reflection you know I will say oh yeah you could see it like that or you could see it like this do you think maybe that could have happened and they're like maybe I doubt it and then we talk into you know probability and all of those different things that expand our rigidity to, that helps us have different perspectives because we, you know, we struggle with that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes when you look at your kids, you kind of see yourself a little bit. Like when you were talking, I was thinking, no, that that does make sense. I took my kids to the zoo, which is one of my worst activities I don't like doing. They love it. So I'm like always a glutton for punishment. I'm always like, okay, we'll go. Anyway, so I took them the other day and, you know, three kids under seven, neurodivergent so it's, it's always a nightmare but it always starts off okay but it's interesting because when I come back and reflect and you know you feel like you've been beaten up physically and mentally at the end of it highlight my youngest has got some emotional regulation issues so he had a meltdown at the canteen because he was given a cup not a bottle which was not even by me it was someone else and he went for 45 minutes the police actually came over it was one of his better ones school holidays, Australia Zoo. So it was busy, obviously that all added to it. But the reason I mentioned it is because when I reflect on the time it is at Australia Zoo, that's what I remember most clearly. Whereas to be fair to him, to be fair, we had a nice three hours before that he was pretty good. But yet, maybe it's hard to really let that stuff go because it was pretty, pretty awful 45 minutes. But I do reflect that sometimes, you know, we do tend to do that too as ADHD mums, you know, a little bit.
1: Absolutely. And this is where gratitude is so impactful and the word gets thrown around so much and I am sure there are ADHD mums listening, thinking like when am I meant to do gratitude and how because like I just don't have capacity. It can be different for everybody and... But it allows us as the mums as well to change that thought pattern from the only thing I can remember was I was flipping exhausted. Why did I do this? I know the zoo's a nightmare. And what do you know? We had a meltdown. Your gratitude for that day could have been just looking through your camera roll and seeing their smiles on their face because that's why you do that. So you don't have to have a special book that's got 14 different questions about what you smelled that day and what you heard and what made you feel, you know, butterflies in your tummy and fireworks around you. It's not about that. It's, you know, when you see your kids smiling, you're like, oh, that's why I take them to the zoo. And maybe next time you'll actually just do one-on-one in school time because the value of doing that for you and one of the kids is so it'll be such a different experience and you know you then rewiring that overwhelm that comes with going to the zoo and I was talking about adjustments last time and again they're not things you know when we advocate for adjustments for our kids we actually need to be more mindful of the adjustments that we need because If it takes all of your energy and your gas for two days after going to the zoo, it might have given them that small moment of joy, but was it worth the three days of you being exhausted because you're still their mum for the three days after? So the value then is changing what that looks like. You know, that might be a one-on-one activity or it might be in school time. They have the day off school. They all have the day off school and you might take someone with you to help and it changes the whole experience for you. But when we've done those things and you know impulsivity is definitely a huge part of my life and I I have this level of confidence that sometimes appears and I go into a decision and I I find myself at the end of the day thinking that was horrendous. I should have known better and I'm going through all of those self-loathing thought processes and gratitude in whatever that looks like is it you know dotting point what was something funny that happened in the day even if most of the day I felt exhausted there was something funny in there or there was something that made me smile and sometimes I can't even generate the thought myself but I do know I've taken 6,000 photos so I just go back to my camera roll (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting
0: and I think that goes back to self-compassion as well because there's a real lack of compassion for me putting so much pressure on myself to take three kids those ages to Australia Zoo and school holidays whereas, yeah, if I had given myself a bit of a a break or been more more realistic or maybe less impulsive with my decision-making, I'm not sure which one it is there, maybe I wouldn't have made that decision but I don't know, it just feels like even though we have less – We like, we neurologically do struggle more than neurotypical women, right? But yet we still put pressure on ourselves to operate as if we are. So, and operate as if our children are neurotypical. So, I put this pressure on myself that I need to be doing this and be smiling and having this great time. But at the same time, I was honestly looking around going, I don't see anyone else's kids. Like, I don't see. Like, imagine having three impulsive kids, right, running through Australia Zoo. They see a wombat, they run. I actually had to ask a few people, "What is your missing child policy? Like, what do you do?" Because, I mean, I lost a few of them at different points of it. I found them again, but I do think, well, there was a little bit of pressure there. There was no self compassion. There's no real realistic expectations there. And then, I mean, and to be honest, and this is a safe space, I'm just going to go it. But it was silly because. I actually backed it up with an orthodontic appointment at 2:20. So I went to the zoo from nine, left at 1:30, went straight to the orthodontist with all three. And yeah, that was a stupid day that was, but th- there was no self-compassion for myself at the end of it. Was it it was efficient. But there was no self-compassion at the end of it. I just like was like, well, I didn't really handle that very well. And how could I have prevented that meltdown? And all of the things that happened and now I'm sitting here, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense because I would never advise a friend to do what the day I did yesterday, never.
1: And did you back it up with cooking a meal for dinner or, you know, cooking some kind of dinner as well? Or did you cereal for dinner? Because I'm so hoping you cereal for dinner.
0: I am very lucky. My husband is the cook. So he, he cooks. Oh, wonderful. He cooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we had a pretty lazy dinner, but yeah, I think I was I think I was frustrated and I've actually picked a bit of an argument with him at the end, if I'm honest now I'm reflecting on I'm like, I wonder if I was just in a really awful mood. And you know, you you kind of projected a little bit onto your significant other at times and I'm now kind of contemplating thinking perhaps that's that's what I was doing there. I was probably a bit angry with myself, perhaps, and I, you know, took it out of my husband, which is awful, but kind of will do it.
1: I think you put it so beautifully when you said you know, I would never have advised my friends to do a day like that. And maybe we need to make a conscious effort to say, okay, this is what my day looks like. Because we're not going to be thinking that this is a bad choice. We are, you know, I am thinking I'm efficient. I'm ticking the box of taking the kids to the zoo, of spending time together on the school holidays. Yes, it ticks the box. But does it achieve the goal? the kids love the zoo, is going in school holidays while I'm maybe at 50% going to really embrace the kids' love of animals. And if this was a friend asking me, should I take the kids to Australia Zoo, the three of them, this is what's going on around the rest of the day, what would I say? So maybe when we find it hard to employ self-reflection in the moment, or, you know, utilize our decision-making skills. Maybe that's a way to, to incorporate that, is thinking, you know, if this was my friend's day, how would I feel about that when I look at that? I think we, I know I definitely do, I get so intensely frustrated with my level of capability, not matching my level of capacity, and it's really difficult to not slip into those intrusive thoughts that come with the self-hatred when you are realising that. And that, that is tricky to navigate because, you know, you want to take your kids to Australia Zoo. You're their mum. Why can't you manage this? You know, all of those things are going through your head and but it's not about whether you're capable or not you are absolutely capable but considering everyone's capacity and your own you know that that's probably why you know you felt like a pressure cooker at the end of it and then the lid came off Mm. that's actually a completely reasonable outcome given the day but it doesn't feel great just because it's reasonable it doesn't equate to positivity
0: yeah, it's just that expectation. I think, you know, on the school holidays too, that you want to, you know, I have to be realistic about how much I can do with them. So I have to put them in a bit of vacation care, at least I can't do it every day. And I know that. So, you know, when I do have them, I try and make it special, but, you know, it often backfires. And I think, yeah, that lack of compassion does come a little bit from the self-loathing a little bit on the lack of of capacity and the lack of ability to be the mum that you want to be. And that's, fucking hard to say that you know you're in the canteen there's hundreds of people and you're like I I'm hanging on by a thread I'm hanging on by a thread and they probably are too because of the sensory overload and they just start running around is their usual they don't kind of stand and cry like some kids will they get amped and they run and, and three of them in that situation can be really difficult yet I keep seem to do it to myself so this is this is going to be a lesson I'm going to attempt to learn when I, when I think about this, because it, and then I beat myself up at the end about why it didn't work, it seems like a bit of a cycle, doesn't it?
1: I have done exactly the same thing with holidays, every single one of them. And every time we come back, I am more exhausted than when I left and I kept doing it. I really kept doing it. But I have been working with my psychologist now for nearly a year and we actually have a holiday booked this weekend that looks so different to any holiday that we've ever done before and i'm so curious to see how it goes because this this could be a game changer in breaking that cycle and i'm hoping that if you know i i do it and it breaks the cycle you know then we're going to be more successful ongoing and actually achieve what we valued not just tick the box of a holiday and I've been really trying to I have the same feelings in the school holidays with the kids it needs to be special and they want to do all these things and you know I want to do them with them because it's the school holidays but when they're talking and you know my daughter might say I want to go to the movies with my friends or I want to go to the movies with you mum and I'll you know ask her a few questions and then what actually comes out of that is that she wants to spend time with her friends so then I'll say to her well if you're at the movies you guys aren't talking to each other so do you want to do something where you're like hanging out more and playing or is it a movie that's just come out that you're all hanging to see you know it might be that And again, it's just kind of breaking down that where is the value in this? The value is hanging out with my friends or I'll say to her, if we go out, we can't, if you and I go to movies, we can't wear our pajamas and we can't use our favorite blanket and there is no hot water bottle and there is no Frankie dog to cuddle while we're watching a movie. So would you rather actually stay at home? We'll hire one on Prime and we will sit on the couch in our pajamas with our hot water bottles and our favorite blanket and watch a movie. And that's where the value is.
0: Oh, I think that's really profound. That's really profound, actually. I like that. But so with this holiday, just backtrack for a moment. What are you talking about scaffolding it better, having better, like better accommodation, more supports? What are you what's gonna be the difference, do you think?
1: So we're going to a town for a festival, right? We're going, it's the Mary Poppins Festival in Maryborough. I'm a huge Mary Poppins fan and we are taking our caravan Lucy. Every time we have gone away in Lucy, the week leading up to it, I am stressed. I have 17 different lists. I have food that I need to cook and prepare and Lucy needs to be pulled out and repacked. And so that's, we haven't even left or considered what's happening on the weekend. Then I usually plan, you know, dinner plans, Friday night, breakfast, Saturday, lunch, Sunday, Saturday, dinner, Saturday, and what's happening on what's around the area. This is planned. So the over planning, but I wasn't over planning because I wanted to, I was planning it like that so that we would maximize the holiday. We would get the best out of the holiday because we've seen and done all of these things but there was no element of freedom in there so if we wanted to stop on the way because there was an echidna walking through you know a a dirt patch i'm not stopping i'm like oh yeah that looks cool and we are because we have to be somewhere at a certain time so this holiday I have and this has taken a few practices so when I started talking with my psychologist about this and different holidays that we've had little weekends away and I'd say I love the idea of the caravan but it's so stressful every time and I just I don't understand if it's meant to be easy so this time around and we've been practicing this so it's not you know, just this weekend that it's happened. There's been a bit of a practice and lead up. I've given the kids a list of what to pack. That is laminated. If we're going away, there's the basics. We've also done a lot of work around if we forget something, what do we do? Because that's a, a fear. You know, I'm worried we won't have medication or I'm worried we won't have underwear or I'm worried we won't have bathers, like whatever. So what do we do about that? So the kids have their own list, but I haven't actually booked or planned anything other than our accommodation and loosely planned our two dinners, Friday night when we're there and then the Saturday night. That's it. And it's Thursday. I haven't packed a single bag, like my bag. I haven't packed my bathroom bag. I have kind of put a few food bags together from the pantry and I'll get into the caravan later tonight, make all the beds and see how we go. Usually on the morning that we leave, I'm still working. And then up right up until that point that we leave. So I then, my transition between work and being happy mum on holiday is zero. So I have no processing time. <laughs> no breathing space none because you know I'll work from seven till nine and then we just get in the car and leave at nine o'clock like I that was completely reasonable in my head and you know I've really I'll be wrapping everything up tonight I'll be on leave from tonight so I'm then waking up tomorrow morning knowing that I have the time and space to have a shower and not be rushed so I'm not Fearing the stress that is coming with just getting dressed and having a shower already before I go to bed. That's, that's not there. We have time on the Saturday. I don't even know what time the festival starts at this point, but I know that we'll be there and that if I look that up on the Friday night, that's okay. I don't need to actually know that beforehand. Whereas usually I, I would legitimately have an itinerary and I thought that's how everyone holidays. <laughs>
0: this is sounding really familiar particularly with the <laughs> just going straight from work to in the car and then just you know you see that meme of like when you look at your kids and your husband and you're like oh we're supposed to be happy now because you just finished yelling at everybody yeah, I hear you yeah
1: right so I guess the, that compassion Oh, it's been really hard to practice, really hard. And there was a legitimate weekend that we went away where we had no medication and no underwear, but nobody died and nobody even really got angry. We were like, oh, well, that's happened. How are we going to navigate this the best we can without medication? And look, we can pop to Bullies for some undies. <laughs> But isn't was it, it funny horrendously that- horrendously uncomfortable? Yes. Totally. But we all survived well.
0: But, you know, it's funny because from a kid's perspective, right, I grew up camping in Tassie and we went camping. I was super lucky. My dad had his own, he was a tradie. He had his own business and he loved camping. We all really outdoorsy. And so we used to go away around this lake with all these groups of families for like, it felt like three months of the year. Because the, the years were, the school years were different down there. It's all changed now, but it might have even been like two and a half months. My dad would take, it wouldn't take all the time off, but we used to go a lot. And sometimes we'd go between, you know, 10 to 14 days at a time. Now, this was 20 years ago plus, right? So we had Eskies, there was no fridges, there was no electricity, there was no toilet, right? How the hell did my mum pack up? a family of five and everybody did it together. And then what we would do is we would come back after like 10, 14 days, we would come back for 48 hours. She would wash the shit out of everything, right? And then we would just, and she'd go to the shops and we'd go again. And I'd love, she's passed away now, but I would love to know how she did that, whether she was stressed Because I then try and go up to Noosa for the weekend with my three kids in an apartment, right? And I think, why am I so incapable? I can't do this. But I I don't know. But, like, from a kid's perspective, is it just amazing? And maybe the mum's suffering? The kid doesn't know? Or, like, what is it? I don't
1: know. I think when I think the kids will feel the stress irrespective of what they put out. Like if they're running around at the beach and having the great time, they're having a great time, but they still feel that we're stressed because we didn't pack milk or where are we gonna get dinner or where are we? And again, I really coming back to that. What is is it that we're trying to achieve? So if it's family connection, sitting around a fire And not being at a restaurant with a booking at this place because we're in that town or stopping to take a photo of something that we think is really funny, that's meeting the goal. And that's where the value is. And, you know, I always thought I was doing it. It was. I always thought it was hard because whether you go away for one night or three nights or seven nights, you still need to pack the same stuff. You're still packing your toothbrush, your medication, everything. So I would start to extend the stays and then it was worse and I could not understand it. I was like, what am I doing wrong? And I'd be looking around at all these other people on holiday, having a great time, being so relaxed. And I'm like, aren't they stressed about how they're going to get back To their apartment to make the snacks because their kids are gonna be hungry, and then and nobody was worrying about that because they were on holiday, and I didn't know how to holiday without the rigidity, which meant when things didn't go to plan, I felt useless and I felt like I couldn't create a holiday for my kids, which is should just be their right. And
0: so is that you know what I'd love to know? I just I don't want to forget it. I'd love to know whether all ADHD mums feel the level of stress because what you just said, like about how oh no one else seems to be worried about snacks, aren't their kids going to get hungry? What's happening next? Like I get over controlling as shit because I'm stressing about having a good time, and that stress of having a good time actually ruins the time, right? And the whole thing's so self defeating. It's so confusing, right? And then my husband's there and he has ADHD too, but he like doesn't feel it at all. He sits there and doesn't move and doesn't stress about anything. But I wonder then at this point, is it because our kids are neurodiverse and they need snacks? Otherwise their emotional regulation goes out the window and they do go psycho. Is it that and neurotypical kids don't do that? Is it that? Or is it, that we just get over-controlling because we get easily stressed. Like I don't know which one it is because I tend to blame my kids a little bit, like, oh, because they're like this, that makes me stressed. I don't know. If you gave me three neurotypical kids, I don't. I think I'd behave the same way, which is pretty confronting.
1: And that's how, like we don't know what it's like to life with neurotypical kids. So as much as we'd say, oh, we do the same thing, That's only because we've had, we've got neurodivergent kids and we're neurodivergent ourselves. The different level, again, medication has been hugely impactful with with this, with holidaying and regular therapy. But also, you know, there is an element for me as well, that I need to make sure There is a conscious effort that goes into what's for breakfast and what's for dinner for two reasons, because we're all medicated and we very much have um, an ability to not be focused on food. Even though we all love food, we're going to go through our whole day without it, which we know then depletes our resources and ability to think and all of those sorts of things. So I'm conscious of it. However, I'm not distressed by it and the you know, the level of controlling itineraries and book the groceries and we'll stop here. They're booked in at 2 o'clock so we click and collect at 2 o'clock on the way so we have to leave it this time because our groceries are ready and that's been removed because I've got more clarity in and flexibility in my thinking. So, yes, it is important that the, I have an idea of what's for breakfast but it is not detrimental to my life leading up to that point because I don't have 17 lists, which is a, so my controlling my symptoms of my diagnosis, I try and do that with lists writing. That's one of my symptoms. So I know if I actually start writing lists now, I'm like, oh, something else is going on here. And then it's kind of a prompt to address that. It might take me three days to realise that that's what's happening. But I'm really proud of the fact that this time around, this would probably be maybe the third attempt. Well, not the third attempt at a holiday. This is the first real attempt at doing the holiday differently. But I'm super relaxed at this point in how this is going to go this weekend because I also think I've really recognised the value of time and space for me, and it's actually so important for my kids as well. So I was thinking, well, Vera always been involved in lots of things, particularly my daughter, and what she actually wants is the flexibility to choose what to do. She lacks the ability to be able to make a concise decision or a decision about what she wants, but when we have time and space, I can coach her through that.
0: You were saying about how you had to roll through, that you're clicking collect it to a clock and you had it like all organized in your brain. That there is why I thought I didn't have ADHD because I thought, no, I'm a highly efficient person. No, that's actually anxiety. That's like full anxiety, stress, because I'm so disorganized in my brain. I have to get it out on paper and then I have to like overly control it. But what you listed, it's interesting because that's how I holiday and I thought I was an overly efficient person. I could never have ADHD. I was very against it. But it's actually a very ADHD trait, which is kind of hilarious.
1: And I was exactly the same. I was like, I'm so organised. I, you know, I do these things. The fall down was in the inability to execute it without the stress and the, the level of anxiety and the, you know, distress that comes with it, that was what I didn't realise either. You know, I, I would be thinking, you know, I had it all organised and why didn't I get there on time? And if it was, you know, if I was just better and if I was just more organised and if I could just be better at everything I'm doing in that day, I would have got there.
0: Yes, and this is where you know school holidays does things to our ADHD mum brain because that's one of the reasons I went to Australia Zoo was because we generally, well, we try to go somewhere and I just felt like I just couldn't do it this time. I was like, I'm going to retire from going on holidays and we are going to do day trips that are quality and we're going to come home and sleep in our own beds and rest. So I've probably put a bit too much emphasis on that because I think you're a little bit further along your journey in terms of learning to holiday, right? I'm not even there halfway where you are. So I'm going to be interested to follow your journey on this trip, see how it goes. We'll have to have you back and you can say what went well, what didn't go well, because I'm sure there'd be a heap of people on here who would holiday like we do in highly controlled, inflexible ways that are actually super stressful that don't need to be because that's how I think a lot of us would holiday. So I'm, I'm keen to have you unpack that um, next
1: time perhaps. I'd love to. And I have no doubt that there will be um, a level of uncomfortability, but I'm expecting it. So when it happens, I won't have that you know, innate feeling of why can't I make this happen or why is this hard or why can't I do this properly? So I'm expecting that, which... I think automatically gives you that level of compassion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, this has been a great episode. We've gone through, you know, self-hatred, self-loathing, compassion, which has been great. And, you know, probably operating as if we are neurotypical with neurotypical children, which we often are, that pressure. And that holiday vibe has been a really interesting one. I'd love to have you back after that and see how you go. Thank you so much for coming, Chantel. I really appreciated it.
1: Thanks Jane. It was great to to be on the podcast again.